Oh. Um, Mr. Kelly. Oh, hey, Sergeant. What's all this? With all the time I've been home, I put in a Zen garden. What an amazing place to balance your chi. It is. And with a personal loan from PenFed, I was able to borrow the entire cost, up to $50,000, at a great low rate with no hidden fees and a simple pre-qualify. But you're not in the military. Everyone gets great rates at PenFed, whether you're in uniform or not. I feel more enlightened already. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash loans. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCOA. Welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, American POWMIA's podcast. The voice of the missing in action and those that are buried as unknowns in our national cemetery. I'm your host and lead researcher, John Baer. Just a boy turning 17 Took me away from my home in Abilene I was sworn I'm a soldier now I was trained to survive And from a boy I became a man We journeyed to a place called Nam Spent 13 months of living in fear They say it's over but I'm still here Hey America, can you hear me? Don't you remember me? Hey America, can you hear me? Why don't you send me free? Hey America, can you hear me? Don't you remember me? Hey everybody, great, great to see everyone. Um, I got a special guest today that uh, I'll bring up here in just a few minutes, but uh, today we're going to kind of discuss the, the Vietnam War, uh, POWMIAs, and uh, the, the mission, the accounting mission that goes into uh, recovering those that were left behind. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a brief background uh, on the agencies that are involved in this, in this endeavor. Uh, the first is the uh, primary agency is the Defense POWMIA Accounting Agency. And since 1973, the remains of more than 1,000 Americans killed during the Vietnam War have been identified and returned to their families for burial with full military honors. Of the nearly 16,000 Americans still accounted for from the Vietnam War, hundreds are believed to be non-recoverable category meaning after rigorous investigations, the DPAA has determined that the individual perished but does not believe it is possible to recover the remains. On rare occasions, new leads can bring back uh, the case back to active status. The DPAA, DPAA and their partners continue to build on nearly three decades of joint field activities with the governments of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Each year, the DPAA plans multiple investigations in each country to collect evidence, investigate leads, and conduct, conduct uh, excavations. The next primary agency that's involved in the Vietnam recoveries in Southeast Asia is the Defense Intelligence Agency. As the United States began investigating more personnel and resources to Vietnam in 1966, it was clear that a coordinated effort was needed to identify the status of prisoners of war identify their location to support potential rescue operations and to ensure that the U.S. bombing missions did not inadvertently hit POW compounds. In 1967, the Defense Intelligence Agency, or the DIA, took charge of this mission. Following the withdrawal of U.S. forces in Vietnam in 1975, a large number of live sighting reports and concern that U.S. soldiers were still being held in Vietnam and bordering countries led to a shift in DIA's mission. In 1986, DIA established the Stony Beach program to help resolve these cases. The Stony Beach mission is to achieve the fullest possible accounting for unaccounted for Americans from the Vietnam War. Today, Stony Beach is the only U.S. government entity focused solely on the Vietnam War POW-MIA accounting. At the, the Defense, Defense Intelligence, Intelligence Agency, Agency, we never forget, forget. 
we bring them home. POWMI Recognition Day, which is the third Friday of every September, is a day that we take time to be able to recognize those individuals who have gone overseas and become prisoners or remain missing to this day, and to also think about their families. The Defense Intelligence Agency has led the POWMIA mission for the U.S. military for more than five decades, beginning in 1967. In the Vietnam War, the Defense Intelligence Agency began without having any formal role in mission with POWMIA. However, as more and more pilots began getting shot down, and as we put boots on the ground, it became clear that there needed to be a central organization within the Department of Defense to oversee the mission. There were approximately 2,200 missing in action prisoner of war cases after the Vietnam War. These are our brothers and sisters, and we need to do everything that we can to account for them. One of the early successes was in 93. There was an Air Force pilot who was one of our priority discrepancy cases. And when we went to the location where we had determined through a number of investigations where he was likely to be, we found him buried in a makeshift coffin, intact flight suit, ID card, dog tags. And to be able to do that for a family was hugely important. One of the five sections in the Defense Intelligence Agency Museum is called Bringing Them Home. PFC Jessica Lynch was a military member in one of the first units going into Iraq in <coughs> 2003. Caught in an ambush, she was wounded significantly in, in a crash and the Iraqis, after capturing her, took her to the Saddam Hussein Hospital in Baghdad. DI's efforts to obtain information on her status began immediately. We got floor plans for the hospital, and we also worked with collectors on the ground to be able to infiltrate an Iraqi citizen into the hospital with a camera hidden in a bag to be able to get proof of life on her status. Many people may not appreciate the fact that DI supports not only the POW MIA mission for military personnel, but also for American citizens and our allies as well, such as in the case of Jessica Buchanan. I was working in northern Somalia as an aid worker. I had been tasked with going to check on educational staff in our southern Somalia office in uh, October of 2011. We were on our way back to our guest house in the middle of the afternoon, and then we were taken hostage at gunpoint by many very angry Somali men. My one and only thought was that I just, I wasn't going to get out of this thing alive until somebody started shaking my arms and legs and pulled a blanket away from my face and then identified themselves as basically SEAL Team 6. We believed that there was a real chance that she could die while in the hands of her kidnappers. DI provided analytic support to those locations where we believe that she may be held. And upon providing that intelligence, a special forces operation was conducted to secure her. It blows my mind, the level and the number of people that were involved in working on my case to get me out. It's incredibly humbling. Right now, DI is still working on more than 1,500 cases. And we will do so until all of these cases are closed and dedicate the necessary resources across the world wherever we think that there's an ability to obtain information or update the statuses of these individuals to secure their release or to be able to bring them home. The last agency I want to talk about, it's actually a nonprofit group, is uh, the League of Families, uh, which was started back during the Vietnam War by the wives of some of those POWMIAs that were shot down over Vietnam and Laos. Um, they got the, their latest update for March 9th, 2021, on the status of the, those that are missing in action in Vietnam is due to the pandemic restrictions, the DPAA filled operations were suspended in early March 2020 are now just resuming supported by DIA Stony Beach, 
Beach Vietnam Specialist, DIA Stony Beach Specialists are conducting field investigations in Laos and Cambodia, and Vietnamese officials are unilaterally conducting field recoveries in northern Vietnam. Currently, we're at uh, 1,584 Americans that are still listed by the DOD as missing and unaccounted for from the Vietnam War, 285 in the country of Laos, and 48 in the country of Cambodia. The People's Republic of China territorial waters, there are seven still unaccounted for there. Uh, These numbers fluctuate due to investigations resulting in changed locations of loss. Uh, The League of Families seeks the fullest possible accounting for those still missing and repatriation for all recoverable remains. Highest priority is accounting for Americans last known alive. U.S. intelligence indicates some Americans known to be in captivity in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia were not returned at the end of the war. In the absence of evidence to the contrary, it must be assumed that these Americans could still be alive and the U.S. government should not rule out that possibility. I'm going to introduce our guest. Uh, joining me today is uh, U.S. Navy Senior U.S. Navy Senior Chief SEAL, retired Derek Van Orden. Derek is a former senior enlisted advisor, Operations J3, senior enlisted and compartmented operations planner for the Special Operations Command Europe. Derek served over 26 years on active duty with multiple combat deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan. He is also the best-selling author of The Book of Man, A Navy SEAL's Guide to the Lost Art of Manhood, and has appeared on national television as a subject matter expert. He is a sought-after speaker owner of the Butternut Cafe and Beat It Roach Creations Publication Company. Derek was also the, an actor in the 2012 SEAL movie, hit SEAL movie, Act of Valor, playing the badass role of Senior Chief Miller, who, would never, who I would never want to be tracked down and interrogated by. During Derek's military career, he had the opportunity to support Joint Task Force Full Accounting in Vietnam. He is joining me today to talk about his experience on the Joint Task Force Full Accounting and what goes into these recovery missions and what it means to these men and women uh, who help bring our MIAs home. Hey, Derek. How are you doing? Doing good, sir. I, I sure hate to be sitting across the table from you. So would I. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Uh, this uh kind of dive into a little bit of your uh your uh, i guess we'll, we'll just start off with uh giving us some of your background in joining uh the navy and and uh start from there sure uh i joined the navy in 1988 to get out of town worked on a tugboat for a while painted a lot of stuff cleaned a lot of toilets i found out about uh being a corpsman which is a medic uh went there and that's where I found out about the SEAL teams. So I went to, to uh, SEAL training in 1991, started with class 184, graduated with the same class, which was great. And then uh, started my, my journey into soft because I was a corpsman immediately following buds. I went to what was called the 300 F1 program in San Antonio, Texas. That is the uh, eight, it's the 18 Delta short course in San Antonio. I uh, went to SEAL Team 4 for five years after that, did three deployments, my first combat deployment to Bosnia, of all places, and then yeah. finished the Army Special Forces Medical Sergeant's course following that and became a fully qualified 18 Delta. And in the Navy, that gave me the Naval Enlisted Code as a Special Operations Independent Duty Corps. I transferred to SEAL Team 1, and that's when I found out about this opportunity to go do something called Joint Task Force Full Accounting which was to find POW and MIA remains. And, uh, you know, as a kid, I grew up looking at the Vietnam War. Um, one of my earliest memories was in 1975. I was born in 1969. So in 1975, I was six years old. And I remember the evacuation off the top of the United States Embassy with those Huey helicopters. It's one of my earliest memories watching that on a black and white television. And uh, so that was the war that I grew up it was closest to to me growing up and i always found it fascinating I had four or five uncles that served in the vietnam war uh a couple in the korean war and others in world war ii but uh so i always had an interest in vietnam the the conflict itself and i asked if i could go on this mission they were taking 
special operations independent duty corpsmen, and then communications experts from both the SEAL teams, the Green Berets, and also they took uh, comm guys from the Air Force. They stopped taking medics for a little bit. But, so I signed up for it. This was in 1998. I was in uh, initially an IE. Th- that mission for JTFFA is, is split up into two parts. One is an IE, that's an investigative element. And the second one is a research element. The investigative element will pick up from where you mentioned the DIA starts doing initial intelligence gathering. So you have at least a roadmap of where you want to start out. You go to this village, talk to this person about this uh, potential air uh, platform that was shot down, crashed, or missing soldiers uh, that are on the ground, Marines or uh, sailors that are on the ground. And so we started, we flew into Denang, which was a very large uh, Marine Corps base at the time. That's China Beach and all that stuff. Uh, yep. So we flew into there and then wind up driving all the way to Hanoi, stopping at various places and forward basing out of a, a city called Vin, V-I-H-N, uh, for a lot of the time. For many of the, the little missions that we ran from there were, uh, uh, excuse me, home based out of Vin, which was at that time in North Vietnam. Now clearly it's a single country. But so that was terribly interesting going and interviewing people that oh um mr kelly oh hey sergeant what's all this with all the time i've been home i put in a zen garden what an amazing place to balance your chi it is and with a personal loan from PenFed, i was able to borrow the entire cost up to fifty thousand dollars at a great low rate with no hidden fees and a simple pre-qualify but you're not in the military everyone gets great rates at PenFed, whether you're in uniform or not i feel more enlightened already PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash loans. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCOA. Mail's here. It's two minutes later than yesterday. And because you know it's six minutes earlier than the day before, you decided it was time to get back to work. Let's job it up. At CareerBuilder, we're ready to help at every stage of your search. Build a resume, get industry tips and advice, and apply to multiple jobs in just one click. Get started now at careerbuilder.com. I had, uh, witnessed these aircraft being shot down. Uh, there was a couple UH-1 Hueys, Navy birds that were shot down. Uh, F-4 Phantoms were a big thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you would go out to these places, uh, walk out there, and look and see if you could find artifact meaning uh, cockpit glass, uh, other parts of the aircraft itself. And if you could find enough artifact, then you could recommend this site for excavation. And that's where further on down the road, a RE, the research element, would come into play. And that's like straight up and down National Geographic archaeologists, the grid patterns, the whole thing, the little trials and whatnot, and getting dirt and shaking it up and all that. Well, <laughs> I was only supposed to do this the uh, investigative element, but there was a, a dig going on in a place called Cam Duck, which is up near the Laotian border. There, I think it was one or two Air Force folks got the Medal of Honor during this uh, big battle. It's K-H-M-A-D-U-C, um, Cam Duck. Anyone can get on Google and look at it. It'll pop right up. Fascinating uh, battle took place. There's 19 missing Marines in this single oh. location. Yeah, and I, so I'm envisioning this saying, well, there's 19 missing um, of my Marine Corps brothers here. Uh, this must be a huge area, but it was like 50 meters by 50 meters. But so they needed uh, on that dig that was taking place the first month that we were there when I was doing my RE thing, or IE, driving around interviewing people. Uh, there was so much unexpended ordinance, UXO on that site, they needed to have a physician or an independent duty corpsman to go to that site. So I, the day before I was coming home, I was gone for a month. Uh, I was told that I'd be going up there and sitting on this site for the research element in Camp Jook because the naval uh, doctor, naval officer, physician wanted to go home. So she yeah. went home. I, I took her spot. And saved it for another month. And it, it was truly fascinating. There's a couple, there's a sergeant major and a captain or something from the Australian Fifth Special Forces Group. And there was an issue with the the, the uh, mocking yards that were guarding the camp. They turned on the Marines. It just turned into this horrific uh, 
horrific battle. But what I found during that time was, or how, excuse me, further into the structure. So there are people, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, that this is what they do as a full-time part of their duty. The mortuary affairs folks are out of uh, Sohai in Hawaii. And then the command element is out of Camp Smith. And what was, this is truly interesting to me. So I come from the SEAL teams and I go there and this command, there's nothing classified, zero. They don't even have burn bags in that command. And the reason being is there's so many of these uh, conspiracy theories, which I think some of them could be accurate about how uh, our veterans, you know, our service members were blown off because they wanted to close out this chapter of the Vietnam War. And there very well may have been American servicemen left alive in that country after the war. I mean, I, I believe that. So uh, one of the things they did to, to try to nip that in the bud with people saying you're, you're having secrets is that they don't even allow burn bags. You can't do anything classified. So I can tell you anything that took place with that mission at all um, in totality, which I think is great in this particular yeah. instance. Uh, so they've got the professional folks and then they have the augmentees, the communications folks and the medical people. Then we roll in. And it was just uh, – it was – Two incredibly interesting months. I mean, we almost got killed once there, which is, you know, kind of par for the course. Or if like, <laughs> we we had to go find this F four, which where's my camera? We had to go find this F four that was way out in the jungle. So it was probably a, I don't know, like eight clicks out from the LZ. We had to hump out there and then look around and come back. Well, they had cut the. Uh, cleared the top of this cosp off, you know, kind of those little pointy mountains, you know, and we're going to land this uh, MI-8 Soviet air helicopter, Vietnam Airlines. I have the barf bag from there. I oh, guess I can't go back to Vietnam because I stole it from the helicopter. It's like Vietnam Airlines barf bag. I'm like, this is awesome. So we were going to come in to land. Um, and if you think that there's this big cosp and then it drops down into this riverbed and then probably, uh, one and a half or two kilometers across the way, there's this big marble mountain, uh, mountain face. So we're going to come into land and, uh, you know, I'm a seal, right? So I do this all the time. So we're about to hit the deck. I undo my seatbelt. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden this bird, it like, it kicks up in the air and then turns upside down and flies upside down into that river valley. Oh, and Lord. then it writes itself. And then we almost smash into this cliff, the big mountain face, flip uh-huh. around, and then we land. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, bang, 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 pinball this thing. Like, <laughs> you tell me you like, didn't go there for an air show? <laughs> I look like an idiot. Let's just be honest. So we land, and I'm like, what was that all about? Well, the crew chief was looking outside the side where they have a right side door on these uh, Soviet helicopters. And as we were coming down, he realized that when they cleared that area off the top of the cusp, they left, they left this little teeny fence on there. And we're about to clip that fence with the rear rotor blade of that helicopter. And if you take off that rotor blade, you're done. Mm-hmm. You would have flown right off out of that. So when we landed out and I found that out, I'm like, wow, this pilot was absolutely amazing. He turned that helicopter upside down, flew it upside down into the river and then almost smashed it, flipped around and landed. And then we're like, okay, that's good. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, That's crazy. <laughs> oh, it was bananas, you know. And then uh, we wanted, you know, hopping eight clicks or back, and we did find a bunch of artifact, uh, cup of glass, and all this stuff, and then came back out. What was interesting is that you have to. There's only so much planning you can do. Uh, so I would do a very detailed train analysis, uh, map study, make sure that we'd have the appropriate amount of or the amount, the ability to. Uh, communicate with people you know now there's there's satellites that are geostationary everywhere back then that was 98 you had to have a a bearing in an azimuth so you had to make sure that you'd have look angles the appropriate stuff and that the combat does most of that stuff but as the medic you got to make sure that you're doing that and i'd been a seal for six or seven years eight years by that point so i'm you know i'm i'm on task but my my medevac plan or my kazavac plan uh, if something were to happen along that route, we were, we were roughly following a uh, river that went way back was b- because you couldn't get a vehicle in there and you couldn't land a helicopter because you have this, at that point, some of it was triple, but a lot of it was double canopy. So you have secondary forestry growth. I don't know if you're familiar with that stuff, but mm-hmm. just, yep. you know, so you cut stuff down. Yeah, it's way worse because there's much more undergrowth. 
But yeah. uh, my plan was if I had a casualty was to take my um, medical bag, which I have a waterproof. It's, it's a, a dry suit bag, essentially, that we designed in the SEAL teams. So you can buy them in the civilian market now. They're ludicrously expensive. But was to bandage up my patient and then float them down the river to get back to that spot where that river met the big river where we almost crashed and they could pick us up with a helicopter. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was the whole plan. They're like, this is crazy. I'm like, okay, do you have another one? They're like, nope. Okay. Well then it's no longer crazy. It's called practical. Uh, exactly. But you know, thinking this, we didn't have any issues with that, but the, the dynamics between the teams and the, the villagers and the, um, you know, the governmental officials I thought was fascinating in that I assumed that everyone would be very, very angry at us because, yes. you know, we, geez, we bombed him for 15, 18 years. I don't even know how long it was. It depends on when you do the start and stop dates. But uh, there was one, one guy that apparently was in one of the villages you went to that, you know, six members of the family were killed and he was exceptionally angry and the, the governmental people knew that he was going to be there and they kind of shoot him off. But uh, all in all, I found the Vietnamese people to be very accepting, very nice. The food is fantastic. Uh, yeah. And they were, they were very helpful, which I appreciated. Um, and it, it is, it's a duty that we owe to the many women, moms and dads, brothers, sisters, cousins. Uh, when our servicemen and women go overseas, we have to make sure that that is a, when someone joins the military, that is it's planned as a 30 year cycle. I don't know if you're aware of this. When someone joins the military, it's on a system and they have a career planned out for that person as an enlisted person for 30 years and they can get out and get out and do whatever they want. But so that's just the, the duty period. If you're killed on active duty and your remains aren't recovered, that 30 years goes to 300 years. It's in perpetuity where your nation is asking you to do things and your nation at large owes your family um, owes that to them to try to help give you as much closure as possible. And for me personally, uh, you know, I'm not tied to mortal remains, but so many people are. And for them um, it's very, very important. So I think that having that mission and having that most dedicated group of folks that are willing to do that day in and day out, because that's just gut wrenching, man. Uh, oh, yeah. I really respect them a lot. Yeah. Okay. Whew. There you go. Long stories. <laughs> well, that wasn't too bad. That wasn't too long at all. So what was it like? At, you know, look, give me a little more about uh, your interaction with the, with the local people there. Um, I know that the, the Vietnamese government has a person that goes into the village with you. And, and I think you guys have translators or whatever, and you actually go in and, and talk to uh, right. people. So you've got, so on, the, on the IE element, the investigative element, you've got, uh, we had a dude with us named Al. He was half Japanese. His mother is Japanese. His father is Caucasian. He looked Vietnamese. Uh, but he was a 3 3, so that means uh, speak and writing 3 3 in the, the Defense Language Institute scale of, of uh, language ability for Vietnamese. He's absolutely amazing. He was with us. We had some. EOD guys, explosive ordnance disposal people, and then we've got mortuary affairs people, and then, you know, kind of staff people, and then the team leader that's there. And what would happen is you drive up to a village, you'd have your minder with you. We had a guy named Colonel Coley initially, who uh, worked with the American pilots in Hanoi. He told me that, like, this is job description. I'm like, okay, great. He's, you worked with the American pilots in Hanoi, and you speak English. Great. So you've been, you're torturing Americans. That, I mean, yeah. that's what was <laughs> taking place. You know, that was his job exactly. at the time. Um, it just was uh, the American servicemen and women, the POWs are treated horribly by the Vietnamese and you can't get around that. They just were it's different cultural norms and all that stuff. And uh, yep. we just got, we just got to put that aside. Um, but so you'd go and you'd sit down at, it depends on what the scenario would be, but you'd be at the, the uh, like the village building, like that town hall, we call it here. And you have, Americans of the government people on one side and then the villagers, everybody on the other side. And you just go through and ask them questions and you pull out a map. A lot of, most of them didn't understand how to read a map, but they know which paddy leads to which paddy dike, which goes to the next paddy, which goes to the next dike to the creek, to the river. And uh, you kind of walk them through that and realize uh, where you'd have to go. And then you just plot it out and 
kind of go out there. What I did, I, I did the first few series of those meetings, and then I realized that I wasn't truly value added in that particular scenario. So what I did is I brought a ton of extra medical stuff with me, and I would do mini med caps, these little, you know, my own medical things in the villages. So I'd be outside uh, with the the women in the village and the children in the village and some of the men, um, and passing out toothbrushes, showing how to use them in mouthwash and checking their temperatures and, uh, just doing general care. I mean, the, the army special forces medical service course is one of the finest medical courses you can go to anywhere at all. And a huge portion of that is tropical medicine. So you have just regular stuff. I live in Vietnam problems. You have helmet thicker, you know, worm infections and you've got bad teeth and your ears are interesting that the Vietnamese have incredibly clean ears. Oh, uh, really? when, yeah, it was, I found it fascinating when you go to get a haircut, which I, you know, I don't need anymore at the time I did, but part of your haircut, they would cut your hair. Then they'd shave your entire face with the straight razor. I mean like your whole face and then they clean your ears with the curette. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a different thing. That's why I love traveling around because that was just totally normal. You know, the, uh, the barber's got one of those little lights and he's looking at your ear doing it. But so I didn't have to worry about their ears, but I'd look at them anyway to see if they have any otitis media or anything, you know, middle ear infections. And that was a way to, to kind of bridge the gap between our two cultures. Uh, and that's what I found really interesting to do. And then I'd go out and help dig around and stuff. And then the REs, the research elements, you're, you're really stationary in a single place. So we stayed in the same hotel. Uh, which, you know, it was not the best Western. It, it, so they used 220 there. Here's something funny. They used 220 the 110. And uh, it's, you're, everything is wet and it's damp all the time just because, you know, you're in Southeast Asia. And so I was getting up in the morning and I was going to go take a shower and I'm like trying to hit the light switch. Oh, no. Okay, so check this out. As opposed to like shunting wires when you move the switch, all they did is just cut the wires. So you got, two hot wires and they're just a little past flush with, with the tile. So I'm standing in a puddle of water. Wow. Did not need a cup of coffee that morning. Yeah. I bet that will go pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. But you know, things, the relationships between the villagers and the government officials are what, what you made of them. Just like anything else in life. Um, I would be very open with them and, and help them as much as we possibly can. We did the first annual Cam Duke friendship games when I was there. It's kind of fun. It's like a mini Olympic thing. Uh, so the Cubans came in as part of their uh, exporting of the revolution and they built all these hospitals and these stadiums. So you go, wow, there's this huge hospital. You'd walk in there. There's nothing in there. Nothing. You know, like maybe a couple ratty beds. There's no equipment. You go into these stadiums. They look, sort of okay from the outside but there's dilapidated on the inside then it was really a an allegory to socialism um and that was really really powerful that was the second or third socialist country that i worked in and i'll be i mean on a you know a quasi-political note uh we just need to be very careful not to get involved in that here in this country and i'll, I'll leave it there because this this is not a political thing and it can never become a political thing at all but so, more. oh no just forget about it so just seeing, though, how that worked, how that unfolded. And it was funny, this guy named Colonel Coy, my favorite, um, I'd sit and eat quail eggs with him at night, which, you know, they're like that big, dude. Right. And uh, so you got to eat a lot of them. But so we'd eat uh, quail eggs and then uh, drink this stuff called kuploi, which is Vietnamese rice whiskey. And so oh. I would just sit and we would talk because he could speak English and learn more about his perspective of the war and you know why they did what they did and um why they thought that they were justified in what they're doing and it, it was terribly interesting but this guy um so we had these camduk friendship games right because the relationships between the americans and the vietnamese had gotten a little tight during that month because it's very stressful and you're working with uh, sorry i'm going to plug my phone here you're working with uh the local uh, folks also and the relationships were kind of strained and so i came up with this idea to do this friendship game thing let's let's stop what we're doing let's take a full day off we got a pig we did a roast and uh, hung out but 
this guy, whichever team was winning at whatever point, he would go over to that team. They're like, hey, <laughs> I'm like, hey man, no. <laughs> you're on, he just wanted to be the winner. All right, you're on one team. Just one. <laughs> um, but yeah, it turned out uh very, very uh it was a rewarding experience for me personally, but professionally it was rewarding too because you know you're out there and you gotta do it. But then as an American more importantly, you know, we should be doing things for America, not personal, professional growth. We, if at some point you have to, but you have to look at the, you know, the grand scheme of things. Why do we really do things? Um, we found a couple teeth and a lot of other artifact uh, at that site in Camp Duke. And so as an American, it made me think, you know, this is time well spent. I've been away from my family for two more months in a row. Um, but there's somebody, and I'll never know who it is, you know. I guess I could look sure. it up and try to find out, but uh, I, I will never know who that helped and let some kid now that's my age understand where their dad was killed or, and give them a sense of peace. Yeah, give them that's that closure. That's pretty cool stuff, man. Yeah, that is. That is. And, I, you know, doing some background research, especially into uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the SEAL the SEAL teams really got their start. Well, they got their start in World War II and in in stuff like that. But uh, uh, but they really started running their missions there in the Vietnam War. And uh, I was kind of looking into it, and there are no uh, MIAs that are SEAL SEAL team MIA members from the Vietnam War. And I found that pretty fascinating that none none of your teammates were were uh, left behind there. If you compare right. it to like Mac B. Sog and 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 those, I think there's still 50, 50 Mac B. Sog members that are still MIA. But uh, well, just to be clear, there are no missing seals. Correct. Yeah. Um, I just found it found really interesting that there weren't from the right, Vietnam. So, so World War II, we started as NCDU, Stable Combat Demolition Units, that evolved into UDTs. Then 1962, the SEAL teams and the Green Berets were made. That was right. John F. Kennedy's uh, don't ask what you can do for your country at the end of that. He's like, oh, we're going to have a bunch of crazy monkeys with good looking hair. I think that's probably a direct <laughs> quote from from Kennedy from SEALs. Right. Yeah, and great, great dancers. Huge part of the program. Um, no, there just aren't. Um, there are not. And uh, when you say MACV SOG, that's Military Assistance Command Vietnam, and there's a tremendous amount of Navy SEALs that were there also. Correct. Uh, just we have always been a smaller uh, unit uh, or smaller units, and we had some issues. You know, Mark Luttrell went missing for a while. Uh, yep. Neil um, Roberts, who's a friend of mine, he's the first American service member killed in Afghanistan. Yep. You know, he was on the ground by himself for a while. But, but uh, we, we take, we get our own back. And whoever has done anything that to a Navy SEAL will pay hell. Yes, they will. <laughs> right. And it should be the same for every service member. That should be the same for, I, I don't want to say that, you know, we're these altered Nino torpedo folks who are trained to a very, a, a much higher level. And uh, there's something incredibly special about special operations forces. There is, that's why specials in the name, but I'm telling you, you're an air force, um, female E3 working in the chow hall and someone uh, abducts you, you get missing. I want the entire full force of the United States military and the whole of government approach to go find you and crush anybody that had anything to do with harming you or kidnapping you. So any member of the United States military or any American citizen who is abducted uh, or detained or anybody by a hostile body, that body needs to know that we will never rest until you are buried in the ground. And you can tell Osama bin Laden that he thought he got away with that stuff. So guess what? Rob O'Neill's a friend of mine. No, you mess around with America. You're never going to have a good night's sleep again, ever. Don't ever forget that. If any of your guys are jihadis are watching this, we will come find you. I don't care where it is or how old you are. I guess I I, about that, man. Yeah. Like I said, I wouldn't want to be sitting on the other side of the table from you and being interrogated. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just, we just, we just need to look at things for what they are. Uh, When you do fight a war, uh, there's going to be things, there's going to be 
people that you just simply can't find. I mean, bombs, you get atomized, you know, you can't find some of the remains because they're just, there's nothing there to be found. And that's just the way war is. It's terrible. You know, you, you shoot somebody down in World War II over the middle of the Pacific, you're not going to find that that person, that their remains. You're just not going to. And I guess you're in the middle of Papua New Guinea. I mean, you sit down at a hamburger, it's rotten in an hour and a half. And that seems like a horrible analogy, but it's not. We are, you know, we're flesh and blood. And that's the way it works. But we that doesn't mean that we should not um, do our absolute best at all times to make sure that we can fulfill the commitment that the government makes to an individual American citizen when they make a commitment to the government. That's a two-way street. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Do you think, uh, what are your thoughts uh uh, do you think our government should be doing more for the POWMIA issue? Um, uh, you know, roughly, I think roughly uh, they have a mandate now. Uh, the DPA has a mandate now of uh, of accounting for 200 service members a year. Um, and that right now, there's there's 38,000 that can be that that are that, that can be identified and brought home from World War II. Uh, a few thousand from the Korean War. Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Her and, and uh, a few hundred from the Vietnam War. Uh, right. Do you think that the government, 200 is enough a year? I think that that's a lot. When you look at, oh, it's 200, you should do more because there's 40,000. All right. To, to get one of those, those persons back, to positively identify the remains. It's not just, oh, I think I'll go to Cambodia today, or I believe I'll go over to, you know, Papua New Guinea. I'm going to head over to North Africa. There's the logistics that are behind that, the information gathering and trying to narrow that stuff down. The actual research that it takes to find that one person is it's voluminous what you come yeah. out with. So you, you look at this and say, we should be able to do a thousand a year. Um, I, I don't even know what that would cost. Not that you want to put a, a monetary attachment to somebody's remains, but just the ability to recruit the people to do that, to have the full-time staff, the physical, uh, the physical and communications infrastructure that it would take to do that. I think really it's not insurmountable. But there are so many things going on in the world right now. I mean, the goal of the United States government to, should be to make sure that we don't have any more MIAs. Correct. And how you do that is you posture yourself very strongly so you don't have to get involved in these conflicts anymore that we've been in since, you know, forever now. Um, yeah. That should be the primary focus is not making any more MIAs. And a secondary focus could be recovering the ones that we can't find right now, doing, uh, giving peace to their families. But that's people just, you know, it, it seems like 200 is nothing, but to find even a single uh, set of remains, positively identify them and then return those, repatriate them back to the United States is a, a huge effort for one. And 200 is yeah. a lot. Yeah, I think it's rough. It's costing, I think they're, it's right around 800000 $800,000 per identification is what, is what it's. That what totally makes sense to me. So yeah, it's uh, I, I my only my only my only gripe I guess is I, I wish that they'd uh, do more partnering with non-governmental organizations that uh, they can help uh, you know that have these DNA labs and different things like that so they can process more of these remains, especially the remains of those that are buried as unknowns in our own cemeteries uh, from World War II, and uh, you know that's that's where the majority of Mars are they're in our own cemetery. As, well, I tell uh, you what, I. I not to you know get off on a political hoo-ha here, but I I have been um, underwhelmed by 
the governmental response from the perspective of administrative cowardice. So you have these people that are so risk averse that have never heard a shot fired in anger. They couldn't, honestly, they couldn't care less that there's a grieving widow over here. They're like, they'll shine around, shake her hand, pat her on the back, and then, you know, go sit around the water cooler and go, boy, what's her problem? They'll do that. Not these people. Let me be super clear. Not the folks that are involved in this joint task force full accounting. They're, they're, the level of professionalism on those on those folks was, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I can't. How, you understand what I'm saying? I professionalism do. and dedication to the people assigned to joint task force full accounting. I, I can't say anymore. Just they're fantastic. But when you're getting into the deep seated bureaucracy of the United States government, these become numbers. They, yep. there's not a face attached to them. There's not a family attached to them. There's not the, the heartbreak that's attached to them. There's not the, the struggle that they went through even during their service. They're just a number and they yeah. become this political, you know, they become a little political uh, pawn for them, which is abhorrent. So the, being able to, and this is the, in the previous administration, there, there are some, there are some outreach along the lines of uh, faith-based service stuff to help with PTSD and veteran suicide, which is one of my things that I work on is try to prevent veteran suicide, you know, yeah. getting out there and saying, yeah, you know what? Hey, does this work? Yeah. Does it have to do with the faith-based system by some, you know, Harvard, this is what I learned on in my college thing. Uh, yeah, it works. If it works, it works. If you could have a group of people in the United States government pair with NGOs that are interested in applying their resources that they are uh, putting their their money and their time and their equipment if they're they're willing to put that forward then we should be doing that and if we're not doing that it's because of administrative cowardice and i have no room for that at all yep agreed 100 percent. i think now, now you're 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 from wisconsin That's and right. uh i think wisconsin's taken a very good lead uh at the state level on uh uh the POWMIA issue i know that the, the university there madison has a they're 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 partnering with the dpaa to go out and do some of these recovery missions and do do the historical research and they, then they get their archaeologists involved their their students and uh uh they've got a uh contract with the dpaa to go out and do i think they're going to be starting to work on some of these world war II european battlefield recoveries and uh and then the state has kind of stepped up to the plate and they say they want to bring all their MIAs home and uh they're actually providing funding, I think, to to the MIA issue. So hopefully other states will will follow and and, and do the same thing. Well, I'd like to see a little a lot of people say a lot of stuff, a lot of people write fancy papers and right. we're doing this. I, I will reserve judgment till I start seeing some uh, stainless steel coffins coming back with lights over. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm sick and tired of people saying, I'm going to do this, I'm doing that. I'm your best friend. I'm going to pat you on the back. And, uh, I want results. We, there's been so much talk about this stuff ever going all the way back to when these wars were taking place. I mean, forever, not just World War II. We're talking World War I, the Spanish-American War. All, we go all yeah. the way back. So many people are, they're going to shine you on, man. I want results. I'm sick and tired of these bureaucrats around their mouth and, you know, just saying the best things. And then five minutes later, they don't remember your name. So if, yeah. if, if UW Madison is going to do that, if the Wisconsin uh, Department of Veterans Affairs is going to do that, great. Show me the money. I don't yeah. want to hear them talk anymore. I don't want to hear them talk anymore. I don't want to hear any of these governmental agencies run their suck for another five minutes until I see results because you know why the lady in Des Moines who doesn't know where her son is or her husband is. And the kid in Arkansas who doesn't know where their dad is, couldn't give a rat's, you know what about someone saying they're going to do this. They want to know where they're at. And it's within our capabilities as a a government. We just did a $1.9 trillion bill for, I don't know what, and we can't apply resources to finding our MIAs. No. I, I refute that. I don't accept that. I want to see action. hundred percent. hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Was I out? <laughs> no, I agree. I go back yeah. to the senior chief. I'm like, I'm done with this, man. I'm done. 
hearing all this hooey. Yeah, it's put, it's, put it's people's it minds is. at rest or shut up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I'm I've worked I've been working researching cases from World War well World main, mainly I deal in World War Two on the research stuff that I do, and uh, you know I've got one case that I just kind of solved the mystery of involved three three army soldiers that were in the european campaign and and uh, uh all three were killed on the same day they uh identified all three of them originally by their dog tags had them buried in the temporary cemetery they disinterred one because the family wanted them sent home to north carolina so they disinterred those remains sent them to north carolina and then uh um Another mother was writing the government saying, well, I want to return my son home to to New York. And uh, when they disinterred those remains, they determined that, uh, oh, he had two different sets of uh, dog tags on and plus an identification bracelet. And uh, so that's not who they, who it really was. And they already notified the family that, you know, he was killed and they knew where he was. So they ended up somehow, an anthropologist, I think at the time, looked at these remains and said, oh, no, it's the guy that we just sent to North Carolina. That's who we got here in Europe right now. So they sweat, take those remains, yeah. send them to North Carolina, swap them out, and then they take the remains from North Carolina and send them up to New York. And right. then they list the other guy as missing in action, the third guy. Well, actually, the guy that they sent to New York, an anthropologist looked at those remains after they disinterred them from the private plot. And the anthropologist told the army, uh, that's not who it is. Well, the armies didn't care. They just said, well, send him to New York and give him to the mother and bury him. And, uh, yeah, it ended, it's, it's two different people too. And they were, they were co-mingled remains right. from what I gather out of the paperwork. And, and, uh, it's not who they say it is, but then the army classified the files and they kept them classified up until you know, 2015, 2016. And uh, researchers are just now getting our hands on these uh, individual deceased personnel files where we could kind of sort through them and try to put the pieces together. But, uh, yeah, so I I just contacted the family here a few weeks ago, letting them know that the the person that they thought that they had buried in the ground for the last 70 years is actually not who's there in that grave. Yeah. Well, that's – so if you look at that, that's a great example – of why this is so hard and why you can say we can only do 200 of these a year. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, you're looking 70, 80 years back, you know, like World War One, you know, a hundred years back. Uh, my, one of my uncles uh, was reported CIA in Europe. And we have the, my auntie sent me the newspaper clipping. Uh-huh. And then later on, they got a letter from a POW camp. It was, he was <laughs> captured during the battle. of Baltimore. They thought he's dead. Yeah. You know? oh, yeah. And so I hope that if anybody is watching this who has a loved one that's missing, I, I do want you to know there is a dedicated cadre of people working out at JTFFA, and there's a group of the folks at the DIA that are really trying hard. Um, but that doesn't mean you ever give up. You write your congressman, you write your representative, write the president, the vice president, the secretary of defense, you write all these people and say, what in the hell are you doing? Okay. And hold their feet to the fire. Uh, but there are groups of folks and uh, the work that you do, John, you know, pro bono is just, it's awesome. There's yeah. thousands and thousands of people that do this. It should be led. I'm not a big government guy. I'm not a big uh, uh, regulation guy. I'm not, you know, I don't want to create the bureaucracy for this. And, you know, you got to wear red tennis shoes or whatever the heck it is. You know, someone's going to watch all the time. I'm not that guy, but this is one of those things where I do believe that this is an absolute judicious expenditure of taxpayers dollars is to at least be the person that is corralling together all these thousands of Americans that are dedicating tens of thousands of their hours every year to try to, you know, close out a very difficult and painful chapter in people's lives. Yeah. You know, these, these men and women gave their last full measure for the freedoms we enjoy. And it's at least we can do for them is to, is to bring them home and put a name, put a name on their, on their headstone. So yeah, that's, and that's, get the that's, right one. That's you know exactly. that's one of the horror stories. When the stuff started with JTFFA, they did exactly that. They, uh, you know, this is that scuttlebutt around the water cooler, right? That they're like, Mrs. Jones, we found your son. You can 
you know, rest and you know, relax now. And she's like, uh, actually, John lives in Cleveland and he's a mechanic. Uh, what? <laughs> so when you find these remains, the processes, processes that they go through to make sure that they don't make that mistake is uh, to say in is detailed is an understatement. That's another reason why you can only do 200 of these a year because it takes forever to make sure that they don't make that error again. Could you imagine that? That'd be heartbreaking. Yeah, um, it would be. It is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. My, my, my only, my only heartburn in the whole deal is, is we I wish we could do more. Um, and just for the simple fact that, you know, when we're looking at the world war two losses, uh, a lot of these men still still have brothers and sisters that are still living, but uh, they're in their 90s and they don't have too much longer to see their to see their uh, sibling come home. So yeah. um, that's the only that that's that's why I do what I do and, and try to push as much as I can on the World War II identifications is is uh, uh, to try to get these these men home to their to their family while their family's still here. Well, hey, uh, let me ask you a question. I yeah. looked. Last night, I found two female MIAs, and I don't know if they're MIA. Okay. It's kind of this nebulous thing. Are there any female MIAs that you're aware of? From, world, well, from what wars? Just at all. Uh, I'll have to, I'd have to research it. I'd have to yeah, look it into was it. interesting. I mean, Amelia Earhart was not in the service when she went missing. <laughs> right. Well, she wasn't. Um, no. But I was trying, there was a couple uh, females that I saw, but they're all recovered. Oh, and by the way, that uh, hospital's in Nazaria that Jessica oh, was rescued from. Yeah, not Baghdad. Oh, is that all oh, on the video? Yeah, yeah, the it's, DIA it's, video. I guess the Defense yeah. Intelligence Agency doesn't know their own. <laughs> I think they just threw that out there, but I've been to that hospital. Yeah, yeah. Were you there on that one, were you? I was not. Oh, okay, okay. I went there. Just, and, just, you know, you got to go talk <laughs> to the people. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's what's um, funny. The DIA would get that wrong. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure well, I map what they want. Um, okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me, man. I appreciate it. Oh, I know. I appreciate you coming on and 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 uh, talking about your experience there in, in Vietnam and in the supporting the POWMIA counting mission. You know that's. Yeah. I, can yeah, I tell you one thing though? So I, oh yeah, keep going. We went in uh, 1989 or 19, 1996. So we went there and they're like, yeah, I went to Vietnam. And people are like, I go, 1996, not 1966. I know I look that old, but I'm not. <laughs> and here's something else. If you're listening to this, I saw some Marine Corps punk on his official thing calling a news guy. Okay, boomer. Did you see that thing? I didn't. <laughs> you better get right before you get left, boomer. Boomer talking about a television host from an official Marine Corps uh thing. It was a big deal that I apologize. Guess who those boomers are, you little punk out there? Those are the people that we're talking about. Those are our yeah. Vietnam veterans that yes, gave that continued the glorious reputation of the United States Marine Corps in vietnam through their sacrifice and service those are the boomers that you're talking about marine boy that got me going man that dude has been working in the chow hall so fast (laughs) his colonel all the way down sergeant majors and everybody down to whoever wrote that they'd be flipping burgers for a good month in that chow hall asking if you want fries with that unacceptable (laughs) exactly well (laughs) yeah Yeah. Thank you again, Garrett. I I appreciate it. And uh I don't I don't see if there's any questions in the in the chat there. So um I don't see any there. Uh Mel Mel and Nettie. Yes, this is my real hair. (laughs) Nettie says it was great to meet you, Derek. So well, anytime, just give me a holler, will you? Yeah, well, I appreciate it, and I'll, you know, if uh, is there any any place where you want uh, anybody that's watching or going to be listening to this in the audio form, uh, where they could find you on? I know I, I follow you on Twitter. Yeah, I, uh, Derek Van Orden at Twitter, uh, Derek Van Orden at uh, Facebook. Um, 
yeah, I, I don't, hopefully, hopefully you don't have enough time to actually watch the stuff that I'm writing, but, um, but keep up the good work. Will you please? And anyone else that's listening, if you're out there doing this work, you're actually doing God's work. I believe that. Amen. So keep it up. You are helping people because you can help them, not because you have to. And that is truly admirable. So I wish you yeah. just the best, the best night. All right. Appreciate it. And if you got a few minutes to stick around, I'll drop you back down and I'll put the closing on and we'll take it from out from here. Okay. All right. Thank you. Again, thanks, Derek, for coming on and talking to us about, about, about his service. Uh, we're going to take the next few minutes to honor a fallen Vietnam hero who was recently accounted for. Uh, I want to recognize tonight uh, Sergeant First Class Alan L. Boyer, who was born in Chicago on March 8, 1946, to Charles and Dorothy Boyer. Alan graduated from MacArthur High School in 1964 in Decanter, Illinois. While attending the University of Montana, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He completed airborne and special forces training and volunteered for the secret war and Mac V. SOG. He was listed as missing in action on 28 March, 1968 in Laos. His remains were repatriated and identified by DNA in March of 2016. He is survived by a sister, Judy Boyer Bouchard of Leesburg, Florida. And thank you again for watching stories of sacrifice. Please consider supporting our mission and helping getting these heroes identified and brought home for an honorable burial.
Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.